0: So this morning I want to uh, continue with the theme that we began uh, last week which is the theme of not knowing but keeping going. So this has to do with the place of sometimes letting go of what we think we know and being open and fresh. And yet, not having that be paralyzing or overly difficult. So what I'd like to do is to uh, review some of what I brought up last time. And last time I also invited the group to uh, do some practices at home related to this theme of not knowing and keeping going. How many of you did some of those practices during the week? Okay, so several of you. Yeah. And then I'd like to take it a little further and a little deeper in, term, in terms of the theme. So just uh, I'll give a, somewhat of a review of last time and I'll take it a little further at the same time. So last time we looked at this interesting balance between how we know and how often we don't know and the value of sometimes not knowing and we looked at this whole dynamic sometimes human history is understood as this dynamic quest for knowledge you know for scientific knowledge where we come out of ignorance and we come into knowledge and it's certainly a significant part of, of our lives so sometimes we can see this quest for knowledge as the, the quest to move away from confusion and delusion and ignorance and come to knowledge, whether it's scientific or, or otherwise. And I also mentioned last time how the brain really likes things to be standard and routine. And we can look at the way that we find in so many parts of our lives that we go to Uh, everyday routines where we do the same thing in the same way. We maybe have the same kind of breakfast or we have the same routine when we get up or we have the same routine for going to work or going to school or whatever. And how many of you can just reflect and know that you have all sorts of routines that you do? All sorts of ways that you do things. And what the recent uh, research on the brain shows is that the brain really likes that. I, I quoted last time one scientist saying, the brain does not like consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> the brain would prefer that everything is completely automatic and you don't have to think about anything. Okay? That, that's its preference. Right? And, and, so, and yet there are also ways that we don't know. There are ways that our knowing Even though we'd like to know everything and um, have everything completely routine, of course, there are all sorts of parts of life in which we don't know. One big area is called the future, (laughs) right? That uh, I remember um, when I was in school, I remember reading uh, the philosopher David Hume. And David Hume says, That even if something had occurred a million times in the same way, you could not know with certainty that it would continue occurring like that in the future. You can't pin it down, even if it's very likely or probable that we don't know with certainty that the um, sun will rise every day. Right? Seems likely, but we don't know that for sure. We don't know, um, you know, we don't know about when we will live or die. You know, and last time we looked at some stories, I mentioned a story that occurred when I was 21, maybe maybe 19 or 20, when I nearly had a really bad automobile accident and could have died. And it didn't occur. It might have. Right? We don't know when we walk out of our house one day whether we really will be alive. It's likely, but we don't really know. You know? And I think we asked, I asked uh, the group, how many of you had situations where you might have had something really bad happen, and half the group raised their hands, right? And we don't know. You know, there's a way that we don't know. We take things for granted, but we don't really know. know, There's a way that, that, uh, that we don't know. We don't know how things will continue in the world, right? We don't know with climate and all sorts of social, political, economic, ecological issues, there's some uncertainty, maybe more now than there has been. Right? And there's also a way, and we looked at this last time, how we, we could say there's a shadow to knowing. Meaning by that, that there's some ways that, that our knowing is not always so healthy. And I talked last time about having, sometimes we have an addiction to knowing and we, we asked about that you know that we gotta know this gotta know this gotta know anyone anyone addicted to breaking news raise your hand <laughs> you know we gotta know this we gotta know this we gotta have to have look at this email or this text whatever do you notice an addictive quality in the mind related to that that's not always so healthy right And we can look at that or how many of us sometimes just have to have some information there how many of us have often the radio or the TV or something on a lot or how many have done that in the past <laughs> right right and so that's very common right that's very common and there are ways that the mind gets addicted to knowing something and we we looked at that and I mentioned a story from my own experience that when I was meditating and really looking into my own experience when I you know, in my first years of meditating I came to the conclusion that I was actually wanting to control moment-to-moment experience. I was actually There was actually some fear there to really be open to experience. I wanted to control it, make sure it was happening the way I wanted to happen. And it was really uh, interesting, a little bit, you know what, unsettling, to notice that I was actually fearful of being truly present. And seeing that helped me to say, well, let's try, let's do it. <laughs> Right? We may also have really strong views. Does anyone have strong views about anything? <laughs> right? And that may, that may make it hard to uh, actually to know. We may have views that get so much in the way of our knowing that we get stuck with the views and we can't listen to other people well. And this, this is what I'm calling the shadow of knowing. The, the sort of some negative aspects of our, about our knowing. Um, we may be really wanting to have meaning all the time. We may really want things to fit in some pattern, and we may go way out and just think that, oh, this is what has to be, when we really don't know. And I've told the story sometimes, which I'll tell now. This is from a story that Sylvia told, and she told the story of wanting to do a retreat at the uh, Zen Center. And she called up and reached the person at the Zen Center, and said I'd like to do a retreat uh, next week um, who do I talk to and she said and the person said you talk to Steve but Steve's not here now call back in the afternoon and you should be able to get Steve and she called back and the person reached the same person I'm sorry Steve Steve was just out I'm sorry he'll be back try tomorrow morning she tried tomorrow morning reached the same person uh, she said oh I'm sorry Steve is caught in traffic he's not here call in a little while and Sylvia at that point said, I guess that means that I'm not supposed to do the retreat. She went, you know, we, she generalized. She jumped in her logic, right? And the, uh, the receptionist, in really good Zen style, said, after Sylvia said, I guess this means I'm not supposed to do this retreat. She said, no, I think it just means that Steve isn't here.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> right? But how, how often do we do that? Do we... We, and our need to know do we reach all sorts of generalizations you know and jump to all sorts of conclusions you can of course this is happening at an uh, extreme level in the um, federal government if you study that and I'll just leave that comment without evidence but you can take a look. Um, Sometimes our knowing is a kind of defense mechanism, isn't it? In which we don't want to hear something and so we think we know. Um, I know one of my teachers once said that people with PhDs have less openness towards the future. They found that in research. Interesting. We think we know. We become know-it-alls. And generally, our culture doesn't always do so well with not knowing. Um, I found this quote from the philosopher Nietzsche. He said this this at the end of the 19th century. We are unknown to ourselves, we men of knowledge. And at that time, it was probably mostly men. We are unknown to ourselves, we men of knowledge, and with good reason. We have never sought ourselves. How could it happen that we should ever find ourselves? So he's saying that there is a lack, even people who have a lot of knowledge often they don't really know themselves. This is from the psychologist or psychiatrist R.D. Lang who who often would say things in very um, paradoxical ways. He said, if I don't know, I don't know. I think I know. If I don't know, I know. I think I don't know. Okay. Should I repeat that? <laughs> if I don't know, I don't know. Or if I don't know, I don't know that I don't know. Yeah, I think I know. If I if I don't know, I know I think I don't know. Okay. And uh, last time I I talked about how there are um in our meditation and in other forms there's some very fundamental practices in which cultivating a kind of not knowing is really important. Again we're looking for a balance of knowing and not knowing and really the question is how can we use knowing wisely and how can we realize that part of actually having deeper knowledge is being able sometimes to be open and not to not to know, and stay with not knowing for a period of time. And last time I talked about three ways that we can uh, cultivate this. One is in our mindfulness and our meditation, when we learn better to be present without having our knowing dominate, so we can be open and fresh to the present moment. And so, to cultivate meditation, we have to learn in a certain way not to know too much. Not to know so that we are just thinking all the time. A second way is in listening to others, and that's maybe more obvious, where we need to have some openness if we're really gonna to listen to someone. And if we're, in a sense, we need to be able to not know what the other person is gonna say, who are not really listening. And the third area was in parts of our lives that are unresolved, maybe for a while. Maybe we're in a transition, we don't know what's going to happen with something we're at the end of a period of work you know we're graduating we're at the you know we're retiring and there're sometimes periods in which we don't know what will happen and there's a real value in being able to be present and not know and still be open and that actually in those periods not knowing is essential for coming to what comes next and what's deeper. So I'm going to talk a little bit about those three and then take it a little further. And I'm actually going to talk some about the, the theme of the dark night, which is more a protracted period in which we are disoriented or don't know. I'm going to talk about that some. So first, um, um, first the the practice of meditation, that there's a way that we have to cultivate don't know. And I mentioned last time, one Korean Zen teacher, he said the essence of meditation is only don't know. Don't know. Just say, don't know. And just sit there. This is the Zen style. This is not the style at Spirit Rock, but that's what they might, might do in Zen. Um, there's another Zen uh, practice called the Great Doubt, where you just sit there and say, what is this? <clears throat> what is this? What's happening? and you try not to think too much. Um, And so in our mindfulness practice, we have to let go of our ordinary thinking and knowing. And in a way, what happens in meditation is that we go from ordinary knowing to not knowing and out of the not knowing comes a special kind of knowing. We can call it, we go from ordinary knowing to extraordinary knowing. That's really what happens. And not knowing is our transitional vehicle so to speak. Not knowing is very crucial for deepening in our meditation and I think in our lives generally. There are periods of not knowing. So again it's a question of what's the balance between knowing and not knowing. And so in meditation we have to learn to be present without our thinking dominating, dominating us. And we need to be able to have a kind of openness where the mind is quiet, still, and present. Not easy, right? So a lot of our practice is continually cultivating that in our meditation and then bringing it out into our lives. So again, as we were saying, one can be with the forest, the mountains, the ocean, another person with openness, without simply thinking all the time. This is from the philosopher and teacher, Krishnamurti. Uh, from, he he has a whole book called Freedom from the Known. Interesting. He has a whole book on that. This is from him. Now we are going to investigate ourselves together, and this is in a meditative way, taking a journey together, a journey of discovery into the most secret corners of our own minds. And to take such a journey, we must travel light. We cannot be burdened with opinions, prejudices, and conclusions. All that old furniture we have collected for the last 2,000 years and more. Forget all you know about yourself. Forget all you have ever thought about yourself. We are going to start as if we know nothing. That's what we do in our practice. We start as if we know nothing. Which sounds easy, but is not easy. Right? It would sound easy just to not know, right? But not so easy. our knowing makes it hard not to know which is when you say it like that doesn't that sound weird our knowing makes it hard not to know and so another way of saying this is that we try to be open without trying to control experience without having strategies and a lot of what we discover in our meditation are all the things that get in the way of being open right that's what we find. All the things that make it hard to be open and present. And, you know, in the t- teachings of the Buddha, they have long lists of all the things that get in the way. You know, what are some of the things that get in the way? We could say there is um, reactivity. There is daydreaming. There is sleepiness. There is boredom. There is restlessness. There is... Um, um, you know, thoughts that just don't stop, right? My colleague Larry Yang had a really nice list. He, this is something he shared in the recent retreat that we just did up the hill. He, you know, you know the model called the seven factors of awakening, or the seven factors of enlightenment. This is a traditional Buddhist list of the things which are helpful for really being present and open. Things like mindfulness, uh, uh, inquiry and interest in what's happening, uh, energy, joy, tranquility, uh, concentration, and equanimity. And Larry said he had developed a list called the seven factors of non-awakening. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what they were. Unconsciousness rather than mindfulness, boredom rather than interest and in inquiry, being, ener- being lethargic rather than energetic, depression rather than joy, agitation rather than tranquility, distraction rather than concentration, reactivity rather than equanimity. So, so actually, it's very important in trying to develop this quality of being open and not knowing, we have to be able to see all the things that get in the way. And that's a list of some of them, isn't it? We have to know those very well. We have to know our top five or top ten repeating thoughts. Right? That's, that's, so this is what we do in in developing not knowing we see all the things that get in the way of being open and fresh and again if, if the word not knowing or the phrase not knowing doesn't click for you maybe use a phrase like being open or being fresh you know, something like that. Then there's the second quality that we can cultivate which is to have a kind of not knowing when we listen I think both listen to ourselves or listen to others. And there are these uh, beautiful images. I mentioned the image in Tibet. They have the image of Milarepa, who sits with his ear like this, as if he's listening for the sounds of the universe. And Kuan Yin does the same thing. Kuan Yin is she who listens to the cries of the world. And she's a listener. She's a listener, and she listens to people. You know, and maybe some of the people that we most venerate are people who are good listeners. And so again, we need to have this capacity for not knowing to be able to listen well. And, how, and again, we can see what gets in the way of listening. What would you say gets in the way of listening, of listening to another person? Maybe just name some things that get in the way. Just maybe one word or one phrase. Thinking
1: I know what, they're
0: going to say. Thinking I know what others will say gets in the way. What else? sort of self-centeredness, you know, like people, oh, I'm actually really only concerned about me, I'm not concerned about the other person, so why should I listen, right, we may not think that, but we actually, kind of looks like that, right, what's another thing that gets in the way? Impatience, Impatience right, what else, what else gets in the way of listening to another person, anyone have one over here, what gets in the way of listening to someone in an open way? Anyone have any, any answer to that? Distraction. What? Distraction. Distraction. Anyone over here have any, anything that occurs to you? What gets in the way of listening to someone? Like when you're listening to a friend, but you're actually not really open. What's, what gets in the way? Anything occur to you? Maybe not being interested, right? Um... Being impatient? Okay. Oh. Any others? Judging. Yeah. Huh? Judging. Judging the other person negatively, right? What else?
1: My to-do list.
0: My to-do <laughs> list. <laughs> you know, I don't want to listen because I'm thinking about uh, what I'm, you know, what I'm going to have for lunch or the shopping I need to do or whatever. Yeah.
1: One of the things, uh, I was listening to the radio and they were talking about trumping Impatient and manic, a little bit manic. Yeah. So he doesn't really process or listen to people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, what I like to do with listening is to repeat back their words, never to put in my own opinion. It's hard not to do that, but
0: when I listen, I repeat back what so you know, you know, yeah, they say accept this acceptance. Yeah. So, so: Yeah, so two points here. One is that we don't always have good role models for listening, you know either you know, either in our family or our teachers, even. Um, I remember I had difficult experiences as a student sometimes, because I, I was the person who raised my hand a lot and had thoughts, and often my teacher didn't want to hear me, got impatient, said, "Not you." <laughs> well, and that's such a good experience. Right. And so we have role models and some of them are in major positions of leadership at the current time. <laughs> who, do, who do not give good examples of listening. And but and then some of the ways to listen are just to actually really be tuned into someone else's words. Right. So listening is a whole second area. And then the third area that I gave that is really important is like seeing sometimes when we have these uh, periods, often of transition, or of uh, changing, when we're not, when our lives are changing. We don't always know what's next. And this can come really at any age. And they're really important times. And sometimes we get really impatient. Oh, let me figure out what's happening. Or you know, what's my next job? And sometimes we may be between jobs, and we take the wrong job because we're impatient. We don't give time for the next thing to open up. So there's really a way that in transitions we really need not to know to be able to be okay with not having everything pinned down, right? So it's a really uh, important area. And again, people, whether they're graduating in retirement or between jobs, between relationships, whatever whatever it might be, there's, there's a sense of not knowing. And I've been interested in, in seeing... Uh, the lives of uh, well-known people. And you can see this a lot. You know, even, the person, even like the historical Buddha, he had a period of not knowing for six years. Do you know the story? He was 29 years old. He was a prince living in the palace. His parents had protected him from seeing anything negative. And so he's very, very sheltered. This was like 2,500 years ago in India. Very, very sheltered. And he, all he knew was luxury, you know. All he, and his parents had sheltered him even from seeing anyone who was sick, anyone who was old, anyone who was dying. And he had knew nothing of that. And then somehow, on successive days, he went out beyond the palace the first day he saw someone who was um, ill and he was shocked. The second day he saw someone who was old and he was shocked. The third day he saw a corpse and he was totally shocked and this totally disoriented him. He said, I have to get a sense. I've learned things that I didn't know before and I have to go on a quest to figure out what is this with life and death? What's the meaning if people die? You know, what's the story? Whereas my sister used to say, what's the story, morning glory? <laughs> and so he went on this quest for six years, and he, he was in this protracted period of not knowing, which if you read the text, wasn't always easy. He would do things, they would work for a while, and then he said, that's not really what I want. I have to look elsewhere. And so he had this period of not knowing, which then led to his awakening and a, and a kind of deep, deep knowing. But it's important to know that he left the familiar to do this. He was in this n- period of not knowing, and he had to learn how to be steady and okay with his core questions not being answered. Right? You know, and I told stories of how that was true for Gandhi and Carl Jung, the, the teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, had a period very similar to that, where he was—he had been exiled from Vietnam. You know, he'd been, uh, he had been—he had left after the communist takeover. He was a—he was a uh, Buddhist monk, and he didn't know what to do. He had been helping refugees, in the uh, refugees going from Vietnam, and the governments um, of Thailand and Singapore had been very negative towards their efforts and they had actually threatened his work with refugees and he couldn't continue it anymore because of the political pressures and he went into about a five year period between 1977 and 1982 when he didn't know what to do this is a person who's now 92 years old and very beloved teacher he went into five years when he didn't know what to do he meditated he read he gardened he lived in a small community. He didn't know what to do. And out of those five years came his whole later work of his life, which has been so creative and so inspiring, probably to thousands, thousands and thousands of people. Came out of that five year period of not knowing. And I talked about some of my own experiences like that. You know, I've had a lot of periods where I went into a kind of not knowing, once for a year, sometimes for six months, and really, and really, um, had to listen and there's a there's a way that um, we can have outer listening and there's also a way that we have a kind of inner listening that's very important for these transitional times you know some of you know the Quakers talk about the still small voice right that one can hear and sometimes we have to be very quiet to know what's the right thing to do or what's the next thing to do or where I'm really being called And so, I have found that in my own meditation, in retreats, there is a quiet voice that sometimes is beneath all the busyness. Do you know that? What's, you know, to listen for what's almost like one's true voice. Um, And it's very interesting that the, in the English language, we have a word, vocation, which is about what is one's true mission in life. And the word that we have is vocation, which comes from the Latin um, word vox, which means voice. And there's actually this sense that one can hear the voice that's telling one what to do. Now you can listen for, and I know in my own training, developing an openness to hearing that quiet voice. Again, the Quakers call it the still small voice that tells me what I'm really feeling beneath all the chatter right? Be, be, beneath all the verbiage, beneath all the thinking, that having access to that is the key to these transitional times and it's the key to, to deeper learning. In actuality, um, the, do you know what the, uh, the old word for church uh, in the Greek language, the original Christian church was called the ecclesia which is the assembly of those who are called, who've heard the voice, who've heard the calling. It's interesting, isn't it? And even now, there's this sense that as we go deeper, as we listen, we have to listen for this deep voice. This is from the psychologist Carl Jung. True personality always has vocation, which acts like the law from which there is no escape, One who has vocation hears the voice of the inner person. One is called. The greatness and liberating effect of all genuine personality consists in this. One subjects oneself, a free choice, to one's own vocation. So you hear the sense, what is is this genuine way to manifest my own gifts, my own insights? Right? I think we're all wanting to listen ever more throughout our life to that. But to do that we have to come into the capacity not to know, to hear that deeper voice. So the last part of my talk I wanted to talk about a different dimension which I've been interested in for a number of years and have worked with some people on which could be called the dark night which is a more protracted period in which we don't know. And some of us, maybe, anyone have these... It could be, for some people, it could be as many as a few years. For some people, it could be a month or two or six months. For some people, it could be a rough weekend. <laughs> <laughs> or it could be a difficult time. But let me say a little bit about the notion of the, of the dark night. So it can be either shorter or longer. And it can be with particular... Um, transitions and there can be a sense in which what was formerly meaningful is no longer meaningful the old uh, certainties can dry up one can be disoriented one cannot know what to do that which gave me joy at an earlier time no longer gives me joy even the meditation that I used to do doesn't seem to work in the same way And and it can be sparked by uh, transitions in our lives. Sometimes that it gets sparked by loss, or by or by grief. You know, sometimes we can have loss in our lives, which takes us off, takes us out of balance. And I've been, I've read a a really, um, really wonderful book, which is a memoir, by a woman named Mirabai Starr, who lives in uh, New Mexico in Taos, New Mexico, she has a memoir called Caravan of No Despair which she subtitles A Memoir of Loss and Transformation and the main loss that she had that she's writing about was the loss of her 14 year old daughter who died in an automobile accident and she wrote about that I wanted to read just two passages which give you a sense of something like what this dark night can be and her daughter was named Jenny. When Jenny died, all my spiritual practices failed me. This went on for several years. I could not meditate, and the very thought of silent meditation infuriated me, (laughs) as if someone was offering a Band-Aid to slap over a gunshot wound. Rituals were for regular people, people who are busy navigating the mundane obstacles of everyday life, not for those who have been stripped, shattered, and blessed by tragedy. Reading has always been, had always been my refuge. Now the only thing I could bear to read was literary fiction. I craved beauty, not philosophy. Sacred scriptures were written in a code I could not decipher, and I lacked the energy to try. Self-help books sounded ridiculous presumption, and whenever I picked one up, I would have the urge to throw it across the room. <laughs> None of the tricks I had developed over decades on the spiritual path were adequate for mending my brokenness. And she also said, um, when I went to the grocery store, the casual manner in which grocery checkers rang up my purchases and bank tellers cast my checks accentuated my alienation. In light of my loss, their bored expressions struck me as sacrilegious, even though I knew they had no way of knowing what had happened. If they were rude to me, I wanted to have them arrested. <laughs> right, so some of us may have had versions of that. Right, there's a period of disorientation, and there's um, there's a powerful author, and this has probably been talked about most in the Catholic tradition, in the Christian, in the tradition of Christian mysticism. And some of you know there was a very famous contemplative who's usually uh, known as St. John of the Cross, who lived in Spain in the 16th century. He was born in 1542. And interestingly, he was, this was the time of the Spanish Inquisition. His background, even though he was a Catholic, became a Catholic monk, his background was probably Jewish and Muslim. <laughs> Very interesting. You know, because you know in 1492, right, the Jews were expelled from Spain and there was a lot of pressure to convert. And this famous Catholic mystic was probably, you know, uh, of Jewish ancestry and probably his mother probably was from North Africa and probably a Muslim. So anyway, that's some of the interesting history. And he had a very difficult childhood, severe malnutrition. And when he was 25, he became a Carmelite monk. And at a certain point, he wanted to live as a hermit, but he he met uh, one of the other great mystics of the time named St. Teresa. And she said, let's be a dynamic duo. She was twice as old as him, but he entered her order. At that time, there were conflicts between some of the different people in the order. I don't know if it was related to the Inquisition, but um, um, St. John and St. Teresa wanted to develop some reforms in the way that people lived, and a lot of people didn't like that. And so a bunch of um, people who didn't like the reforms kidnapped St. John, and they held him in the cellar of a monastery as if he was in prison in the darkness for nine months. Can you imagine that? Monks kidnapping other monks? (laughs) Anyway, that happened. Anyway, and... um, his, his solace was looking at the night sky and composing poems. He didn't have any papers, so he memorized them all. And they, we actually have a lot of them. They were published. And so I think partly out of this experience, he talked about what's called the dark night as having these two phases, actually actually two main phases. One of the first one is called the uh, night of the senses. And what, what he was saying was actually that this uh, these dark nights actually are actually signs of progress they're actually signs of maturity they don't happen to you if you're a beginner they happen to you when you've been going on in some time and they're actually meant he used the metaphor they're actually meant to wean you from your mother's breast and children don't like that right and so he said this is actually a sign of maturity when you have this first phase called the night of the senses, everything dries up. All the practices dry up. Things don't have meaning. He says, your meditations aren't meaningful. The ceremonies aren't meaningful. In ceremonies, this is from St. John, in ceremonies, beginners may seek pleasure. When no such feelings come, they think they have failed. They become discouraged and lose true devotion in spirituality. Left with aridity and dryness, practices become tasteless. But he says you have to stay with it. Not so easy, right? You have to stay with it. You must surrender into peace and quietude, even if you have a sense of wasting your time and being lazy. Nothing's working, but you have to stay with it. This is for monks who don't have too many tasks. You just stay with it. And, and it's different from just being depressed. Depressed you know it's basically um, there is a in the dark night there is kind of a there's a weariness but there's also glimpses of something positive there are glimpses of something beautiful and if one stays with it there's a second phase which not everyone goes through called the night of the spirit which is more difficult in this, in this phase every one of one's religious or spiritual certainties dries up it's no longer true there's no meaning of anything. And he says it's like a, we would say it's a crisis of faith. Nothing, in a sense, matters. Um, and you have to stay with a kind of not knowing. So I, I wanted to read a little bit from one of his poems about not knowing. He said, I entered into an unknowing and remained there knowing nothing. And he stayed there for a while. Whoever arrives in the, in the land of unknowing frees herself of herself. Everything she thought she knew falls away and her consciousness expands to unfold the whole universe. This circle transcends all thought. I had no idea where I was but eventually I found myself without knowing where there was I suddenly started to understand sublime things. So something comes of this. There's a darkness but eventually there's light that comes and there's knowing that comes but one has to be able to hang out with the unknowing and so in that time and I've thought of this because I've worked with some people who've gone through this in our contemporary time and there are a lot of challenges of this period of disorientation you know it may be to ask and these can come up in any of our transitions and I want to just name some of these challenges they may be there when we retire or when we graduate or when we're in this transition so one of the challenges is not knowing exactly who we are who am I? I'm not doing what I used to do. Who am I now? I'm retired. I'm not productive like I used to be. Who am I? You know, big challenge, you know. And you know a lot of people don't navigate it. We know that for that we know that the suicide rates for older men has increased in the last period of time sometimes from unemployment. So how can you navigate this period of not knowing? Listen for the inner voice as to what comes next. We can have a, we can have a loss of self-worth if we were doing something valuable, socially esteemed. Mm. Obviously, we can have a whole range of difficult emotions from you know, confusion to anger to despair to sadness and so forth. We have to be able to navigate those. We may have a lot of shame. That can be there. You know, and sometimes, because sometimes from the outside, of people are going through this difficult period, other people may think something's wrong with you. And you may get, one may get, people that I've worked with were sometimes pathologized by other people. You know, something's wrong with you. You know, when in actuality, something deep was being called for. But other people would get scared, and they would think there was some pro- big problem a pathology, or they were, you know, you know should just... Snap out of it or get it together. There can be a lot of self-judgment because of this. There can be, you know, the, there aren't any stories. There's a lack of uh, orientation, lack of narratives, lack of faith, often a lack of confidence. So this is hard, right? What I've just described, that can happen, it can happen for us for one evening, one weekend, two weeks, six months for a year. It can happen in small versions or larger versions. But I think that I think that mentioning this dark night can be helpful. Do you find that interesting? It's pretty, pretty powerful, pretty powerful material. And so, you know, just to finish, I talked about the uh, title as not knowing but keeping going. And that came out of, um, I had been using, I, I had been doing a teaching with my friend and colleague, Diana Winston, and we had, we had developed these 10 guidelines for, it was actually in the context of connecting inner practice with bringing it out into the world. And uh, guideline number six was not knowing. And Diane at that time was doing teen retreats. And she presented this list to people. And one of the teens said, hey, not knowing, that's not enough. Because if you don't know, you might get discouraged. You have to add, not knowing but keeping going. And then we changed it, <laughs> right? So I like that, right? It was like you have to. There's a way to, that. Not knowing can be difficult. I just all the things I just mentioned, right, can be difficult, paralyzing, challenging to one's sense of self, etc. And so you have to have ways to keep going. All sorts of ways to keep going. If we develop the capacity to have a, have a way of being open. And not knowing, particularly for these challenging periods, we can be of amazing use to other people. We can help guide them when they're disoriented or confused. We can be—you know—it's like kind of like being, in a, you know, it's like with someone when the person is dying. The person's going into the unknown. If you're comfortable with not knowing, you can be okay with the process of being with people who are going through something really difficult unknown like dying, like an illness, like a loss, like disorientation and you can be there without needing to fix it, without needing to think you know what's happening. You can be open with the not knowing, in a sense we learn how to be with the mystery, you know, which is probably the, in the deepest form when we're with someone who is dying or with ourselves when we're dying. So I think I'll just end with uh, a very short summary of everything. This comes, this is a quotation from uh, Sir Richard Francis Burton, who was the translator in the 19th century of the Arabian Nights. Okay? And and I I just found this. It's a nice, it's a quote about um, uh, knowing and not knowing. Okay? It's very short, so now's the time to listen. Okay. Okay. He said, this is, he said this, One knows not how to know who knows not how to unknow. So basically saying, you can't really know unless you know how not to know, unless you know unknowing. So I'll read it again. One knows not how to know who knows not how to unknow. So you can't really know unless you don't know, is that clear? One knows not how to know, who knows not how to unknow. Let's sit quietly not knowing anything (laughs) for a short time, for about 15 seconds. open to any uh, questions or comments, uh, reflections, stories. And we'll use the microphone, so wait for the microphone to come. Would you mind repeating Richard Burton quote? What's that? Do you mind repeating Richard Reach, uh, Repeat the Richard uh, Francis Burton quote. Francis Burton. Sir Richard Francis Burton. Um, one knows not how to know who knows not how to unknow.
1: I really appreciate this topic um, relative to current events. Every day I think that has to be the one to End this. Yeah. And, and I appreciate knowing that nobody knows what will end it, and that that the path to what will end it and um, change our political situation in our country is a mystery to everybody.
0: Yeah, yeah. One wonderfully said. Um, And I'm glad you made that connection. It's something I've thought about a lot. We could say that we're going through a kind of collective dark night of the soul. Right? Now, not everyone holds that perspective, but uh, many people do, I'll just say. And that the capacities that help people to go through this current period, many, many of us, has to do with being able to hold the unknowing without... Uh, to use a Buddhist technical term, freaking out, <laughs> <laughs> or without um, getting lost, and it's not easy. Right? It's not easy, and you know I think I've mentioned that I, I've been teaching in the last six months a lot around the country, and you know working with these themes and hearing people's stories and reports, and you know a lot of very difficult emotions. So how can one? Uh, really, uh, in a sense, uh, know what you know, know that there's a lot that you don't know, and keep going. Right? It's not easy. But I think holding it like that is helpful to think of it being a collective, unknowing being important, and people who, who are not skilled in not knowing will have a hard time in this period. And if we're, so we can transfer what we do in our meditation to the um, way of being in a larger world. And that's just a beginning. I think that, that making that connection is important. So knowing some about the dark night of the soul is helpful when it's more of a collective kind. Another other language some people use is that we're, we're having an, a, a deep encounter with a collective shadow. Yeah. Thank you. Please.
1: i feeling, but couldn't name it. Mm-hmm. And that was very unsettling, right there. And, well, in naming it, I guess it makes me feel like, okay, now I have a mission. And so I've had this experience of disorientation around two issues in two parts of my life. And of not knowing, and confusion, and just mm-hmm. wondering what to do, can't decide, don't know. And that's been going on a long time, and it's unsettling. But to hear you name it, mm-hmm. and call it a thing, yeah. has made a big difference. Yeah. And if you have any, um, first of all, if you'd like to talk about this again, I'd be interested. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I, I didn't so much talk um, about if ones in this process for you know, like you know, a short period of time, a medium period of time, a longer period of time. What's helpful? I, I didn't say so much about that, and so um, I'll, I'll just reflect on some of my own experience because I've 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 worked with some people. Um, over a protracted period, who've been going through this. And um, one thing uh, is having connection, avoiding isolation, having community, having a guide can be really, really crucial. You know, it could be a peer, it could be a teacher, but having some way that you are not isolated just with your own disorientation is really crucial. We can call that community, friends, have people that you can talk to about it really, really honestly. That's really, really crucial. And, and if possible, have people that you can, who maybe have gone through it to some extent or know about it, know about the process. Some, um, And again, I think uh, anyone who's been with some kind of uh, experience where there's been some disorientation may have some uh, suggestions. So community, um, mentoring... Um, being with uh, being with what really uplifts you is very very helpful there can be a way that the, these can be hard or even a little bit depressing or a lot depressing and so being with beauty is really really crucial being with the beauty of the earth with of the forest, the mountains, the ocean being with the beauty of music and art and so forth I think that's really a, a fundamental part of things um taking care of your body, you know, trying to get enough sleep and a uh, good diet, sometimes these things can be really hard on one's own system. And sometimes they can be uh, both, you know, mentally, energetically, and physically exhausting. Right? So you want to find ways to uh, take care of your energy, not, not to um, push too much. Often something is being surfaced that needs attention, you know, like because all of these, I'm framing these as time, you know, and this is the way St. John of the Cross also presented it these are all opportunities for great learning and great growth these just aren't hard times that you sort of stay with for a while and and you make it through and get over, these are actually, St. John of the Cross thought that the dark night was actually a profound opportunity for deeper development, right, that people wouldn't choose but it comes to some people And and so to have that narrative, this is also important, to have a framework where you see this as not just a curse, but also a blessing. Because one thing that can be difficult in this kind of period is that the narrative gets very narrow. And the narrative becomes, this is just a rough time for me, a hard time. That can very easily go into self-judgment. And so having a narrative that involves some idea of this is potential growth or this is an opening or I'm facing some of my own difficult stuff and I get a chance to work through it. You know these are all so that the the framework or narrative that you hold this is where of course community and mentor can be really helpful that's a that plays a very key role also to watch out for um, to watch out for the shooting of the second arrow. So a lot of meditative tools. Watch out for, oh, this is a hard time. Therefore, one goes to self-judgment, reactivity. Watch out for that. And, and try to f- have a narrative that could be um, supportive. So those are, those are a few things. Any, any reading material? <clears throat> any reading material? Um, <clears throat> it's a good question. This is a good book, <laughs> Caravan of No Despair i talk some about that. Um, Let's see. Um, Yeah, in terms of working with transitions, in terms of the theme of not knowing, you can find good resources uh, on mindfulness. The Zen tradition particularly emphasizes this. And so you can read Sung Sanim, the Korean Zen teacher. Uh, I think he even has a book called Only Don't Know, one of his books. So uh, Zen tradition... um, you know, uh, reading you know reading, some I actually brought in Saint John of the Cross, The Dark Night of the Soul, might be illuminating. The translation's a little bit rough. Actually, Mirabai Star did a translation, which is a little which is a little more reader friendly. Um, so th- this is the old translation from about 50, 60 years ago, which which I've read, but um, that might be helpful. And they're I think um, I mean reading <laughs> reading the story of the Buddha reading you know, uh, uh, Carl Jung's book, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Reading biographies of people who have gone through something like this can be helpful. Jung's book is called Memories, Dreams, Reflections. He talks for, at length about his own period of being disoriented. So it's a start. But I, yeah, I should drop a reading list. I think we're going to drop a good reading list when we do a day long on the dark night on March 3rd. So you can come to that, yeah, please. Thanks for the question.
1: I'm thinking about the um, students I'm with today and how it is for people when they're in a student part of their life. Yeah. And there's so much emphasis on being a knower.
0: That's right.
1: And you get grades for being a knower and those grades translate into your Future, yeah. And um, what might you say um, for people in and in? Additionally, adults are often you know quite taken up with. They make money from a part of their lives where they do know things, or they're supposed to know things. Yes. And what what might you say that?
0: Yeah, Um, yeah. I think for at at any Any age. age, but I think I think for students. Um, Knowing is really important, and gaining knowledge is really important. I would say have some times where you cultivate not knowing. And it could be maybe you like meditation, that could be a time, or you um, like it could be in listening to music. Can you listen to music almost like a meditation and just be really, really fresh with the music without thinking about it too much? Can you be really fresh when you go to the ocean? And try to just be there with the sounds. So sound is a really good way to do it. We Can you just listen to the sound? Sound is a really good training for meditation. Can I just be with the sounds of the ocean? Every time my mind wanders, come back. So I would say, find a part of your life where you can cultivate also this not knowing. It could be with music, with being in nature, um, probably best not to do too much with your least favorite teacher. (laughs) I will cultivate not knowing with you. (laughs) Right, so um, I would say find some parts of your life where you can actually have this attitude of not knowing. And again, if the word not knowing doesn't quite work for you, use something like just being really open and fresh. That could be, that, that can work. So I think that's true for everyone. Have some oases of not knowing. and uh, our daily meditation is like this, and just find, a, find places where you get away from the electronic media, you get away from the constant knowing, and just have an, a, you know, a, a free zone. Okay. That's a great question, thank you. I think that'll be the last one. And let's just, we'll finish with just with two short things. First of all, just sit and see if there was something from our time together that you find helpful or valuable. It could be related to the talk and the theme, but maybe there was something that just occurred to you during our time together that has nothing to do with the theme, and maybe that was actually what was most important for you this morning. So just sit and invite what's most important and any intention that you have coming out of the morning. And then secondly, we end with uh, the traditional practice called the dedication of merit, where we remember that we do this practice, we do this inquiry, both for ourselves and for others, that we want to do things which are very helpful for ourselves, but it's also very much to help others. And ultimately, the horizon of our practice is to be able to help all, all others, all beings. And that's what we remember at the end, that we want to offer the benefits of our time together out into the world for all all beings whatsoever, without exception. So please uh, practice not knowing, but keep going. (laughs)